Please join me this morning in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, and we will be reading um, all of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 this morning. The title of today's sermon is Providence in Suffering. Today is part 2, if you recall, if you were here last week, we looked at the end of Luke chapter 8 with the same title. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are suffer, sovereign, and God. Now, if you are uh, visiting with us, uh, we've been traveling verse by verse through the gospel of Luke uh, for quite some time now. And typically we would pick up in chapter 9 because we ended last week with the end of chapter 8. Uh, but I want to take an extra week to deal with the specific issue that was raised in the text last week at the end of chapter 8, namely the relationship between suffering and the providence of God. Now, it has been said, and for the most part I agree, that one of the most important roles of a pastor in all that we're called to do In preaching, counseling, shepherding, prayer, evangelism, all of these works serve the task of preparing the people of God to suffer. Now, yes, of course, we are not the primary focus. We can very easily assume that saying such a thing means that our focus should be on us. But I want to paint a picture for us this morning that shows us that our suffering... And the sovereignty of God are not competing theological issues. And that our suffering is mainly about God and his glory. We saw this very thing at the end of Luke chapter 8 last week. With the power of Jesus on display in the healing of the woman in the crowd with the discharge of blood by just touching Jesus' garment. And then we saw Jesus raising um, excuse me, Jairus' daughter from the dead. <clears throat> we saw great suffering through this narrative account. And yet, in that suffering, we saw the providential hand of God. He ordained these events that the power of Jesus might be made known to the people. And that the, the faith of the people involved might be wrought in magnificent ways. So this week, we're going to continue looking at the providence of God in suffering. And Lord willing, next week, we'll pick back up in the Gospel of Luke. But this is too important for us to not dwell on. As we identified last week, and as I've meditated on even more this week, each and every one of us, in one way or another, will suffer. In fact, on some level, more uh, some more than others, all of us have suffered. And life in a fallen world is really lived by moving from one instance of suffering to the next. Now, I realize I said I'm painting a picture this morning, and I also recognize that those words aren't the roses in the picture. But we have to understand that the frowning providences of God are only hiding the smiling face of God, in the words of William Cooper. Suffering is for our good, and it is intended to bring glory to God. 
And I want to focus our attention this morning on a man that has suffered more than most and whom God has given us as an example to display the important issue of suffering and the providential hand of God in the midst of it. Now, very quickly, before we jump into the text, I want to help us understand the difference between the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. When I use this word sovereign, I'm saying that God has the power, the authority, and the ability to do as he pleases over all creation, and indeed all that exists and all that happens is contained within the sovereign decree of God. When we use the word providence, I'm simply referring to the working out of God's sovereignty. So the events in our lives and their outcomes are a result of God's providential hand who has the power, the authority, and the ability to do all that he does. So when I say that God is sovereign and that God is working out his sovereignty through his providential dealings with all of creation, it's not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things but that he does govern all things for his own holy and wise purposes. So I want to ask us two questions this morning. And I hope that in doing so, we will continue to build a solid foundation for suffering so that when it comes in our lives, that we are prepared, that we are thinking correctly about it, and that we are worshiping God in the midst of it. And before we get through those two questions, let's turn to our text this morning. We're going to read a lot, and I won't be able to walk us through every verse of this uh, like we typically do, but I want to give us a big picture of the context here in Job chapters 1 and 2. So let's begin in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell among them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, And fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out in the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now we ask, does God ordain suffering? 
It seems very clear to me from the scriptures that in God's way, he takes all boasting off of men to put it back on himself. And one way he does this is through a means which is often very baffling and very trying to us and yet is very much a part of God's design. Now, as we deal with suffering, we must also confront one of the greatest difficulties for American Christians. As a people, we are all very comfortable and we're very accustomed to thinking that suffering isn't normal. It isn't something to persevere through, but rather something we are to immediately seek to eliminate. That certainly doesn't mean that we want to seek it out. But rather, I hope that we can conclude this morning that we are called to embrace suffering as God's way to make us more holy and to make him known all the more as the all-glorious creator and sustainer of all things. We've been inundated with a false gospel of health and wealth and a complete misunderstanding of God's plan to not only involve pleasantries in our life, but also trouble and despair and suffering. Suffering is biblical. And saying that all believers should be healthy and wealthy and prosperous is not biblical. So I pray this morning that God will waken Awaken in us the strongest of faith in his providential work and the deepest comforts in the midst of our sufferings and the sweetest fellowship with Jesus that we have ever known. When Job's ten children were crushed to death, he fell upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And to this amazing confession that God has taken his children, the author of the book of Job responds with this confirmation, in all that Job said, he did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Similarly, even when the text says explicitly in chapter 2 and verse 7 that Satan afflicted Job with loathsome sores, Job's response was, Shall we receive good from the hands of God, and shall we not receive evil? And again, the author endorses Job's theology here with these words. In all that Job said, he did not sin with his lips. Can we speak that way? Or should we speak of God working with what he has been given? In other words, does God oversee and manage the affairs of the world so that we can speak of suffering as um, something that he just has to reach out his hand and correct? Or can we speak of suffering as his will and his design? In other words, does he manage the world like a chess player who does not know the moves of his opponent but can always check them in return for good? Or does God ordain suffering in the lives of his people for good ends? Is he a responder to the adversaries of pain, death, and Satan? Or does he use them all for his good and holy purposes? 
It's very important that we see this from Job's perspective. Job learned a very valuable lesson in his suffering and in receiving the repugnant counsel of his well-meaning but theologically inept friends. Now, there is a side lesson in the book of Job, and that is that we must realize that there are many places in the Bible in presenting to us what was said by others, that we recognize that when we read our Bibles, we have to see in narrative that not everything that the Bible says is presenting something that is theologically true. Job's friends were giving him horrendous counsel. And so we recognize that in doing so, God is presenting to us simply what they said, not to turn to what his friends have said and to apply their counsel to our lives. And if you are to read the entirety of the book of Job, you know what I'm talking about. But from Job's perspective, we can see the end of all of this in chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. We read this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's Job's response to God after it's all said and done. And after all that Job endures, after all of the suffering that he encounters, this is how he responds. But how does he come to this place? How did he get to the place where his final response is essentially, God is sovereign and nothing will change that? Well, from Job's perspective, in the end, Satan may play his wicked role in the drama to take Job's children, to strike him with boils from head to toe, but even Job will not give Satan the authoritative position of sovereignty. That belongs to God alone even if we can't understand it all. But Job has discovered, as I assume many of us have, that it really is of little consolation and comfort to focus on some supposed freedom of Satan to destroy and do as he wills. Now, we could spend a long time talking about how we see the interplay between Satan and God and God's use of secondary means to bring about his ultimate purposes. And these things are important, and we see them all throughout scriptures, and it's an important conversation to have. But I want to point out to you the very reality of what Job is doing here. And I want to say that if we have a solid foundation In a suffering theology, we are able to do the very same thing that Job did in the midst of suffering. Namely, that our great security and our great support and our great hope is found in despising the hateful hand of Satan and looking far beyond him to the omnipotent providential God of mercy who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You see, doing a Bible study on suffering in relationship to God's providence in the midst of suffering may be somewhat helpful, but not to the extent that it can be if we build a rock-solid foundation up front in preparation for suffering. 
And so I urge all of us that we not ever stop seeking God on this issue in the Bible. We need a granite base when it comes to suffering because it will come. And the question is, how do we respond? So what sometimes happens in all of this is that we can get lopsided in our thinking. But we have to fight that. The Lord is not only sovereign, but we have to also see in the midst of it all that God is also very sweet. James helps us to see this in James chapter 5 and verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's how he explains the work of God in the book of Job. And with that understanding, we can discern from the text that God doesn't simply allow suffering, but indeed he ordains our suffering. Now the tendency in the midst of suffering or in attempting to comfort those who do suffer is to present relief by sparing God of his sovereignty over our pain. But there's a very unfortunate error in doing so because it takes out all of the hope that our suffering is created to present to us. When all 42 chapters of the book of Job are said and done, the author of the book ends with an undoubted fact that God governs all things for his good and wise purposes. The text even says that Job's brothers and sisters comforted him for all the evil, or also translated as trouble, that the Lord has brought upon him. That's Job chapter 42 and verse 11. This is the author speaking. This isn't one of the misguided characters in the drama. This wasn't one of Job's friends saying this. This was the inspired word of God. And in fact, we need to look no further than the beginning of the story to see God's design. Look again at Job chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Do you see what God does there? He makes Satan aware of Job. You want someone to torment? How about my servant Job? How can that be? I admit that language is a, a little unsettling. Are we assuming now that God is responsible for some evil act? But we must remember the words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. It's perhaps one of the more famous verses of Scripture and yet one of the most neglected in terms of its real force and weight. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. God meant it for good. He planned it, he ordained it, he decreed it, he providentially ruled over it, and all of it served the purpose of his great and final end. 
And what makes suffering endurable, however it comes, is not that God shares our shock. It doesn't happen and God simply says, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to happen. But instead, that through every instance of pain, through every debilitating psychological issue, through every situation of fear and calamity, the providence of God is fully functioning and God remains sovereign and God remains in control. We see chaos all around us. But rest assured, He is in control. He is governing all things for His good purposes. And I admit that suffering among mankind is in many ways a mystery that defies all human logic. But this book of Job deals with this subject profoundly. But do you realize in the end, after 42 chapters, we still don't have an answer? It never gives us a neat, logical solution other than to say, God is sovereign. And God is good. And yet I think there are some very important conclusions that we can and must draw. First, let's consider the power of Satan. Now what's clear in the story of Job is the presence and the involvement of Satan. What has he to do with suffering? Where is his power? Here in these first two chapters of Job, we have Satan pictured as having access to God and making certain demands of him. And we see this interesting interchange between God and Satan that we just read in verses 9 through 12 and again in chapter 2. Remember how Satan answered the Lord in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. After he had destroyed his livestock, his servants, his children, he comes back to the Lord. And he says, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. I want to add to this as well what Jesus tells Simon Peter in Luke chapter 22 when he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you, to sift you. And so the question is, to whom has Satan made this demand? To the only one who could ever give him permission, the creator, the sustainer, and the giver and taker of life, It is God himself. So we see in both Job and in the words of Jesus, Satan must go to God for permission before he can trouble the lives of his children. And there's no doubt that Satan does have significant power. Jesus calls him the prince or the ruler of the world. And Paul calls him the God of this age and the ruler of the authority of the air. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He holds them in his snares until God releases them through the gospel. He can take life as he did with Job's children. He can ruin health as he does with Job's body. He can torment with demons. He can provoke evil deeds. And the fact that Satan and his band of demons have such power in this world should give us a kind of seriousness about lives that unbelievers don't have. 
It ought not to make us paranoid or fearful, as we talked about a few weeks ago with the Gerasene demoniac, but sober and earnest in our prayers and persistently conscious of our need for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's one implication of Job's calamities, namely that Satan is real and Satan has been given significant measures of power and that we cannot neglect our dependence upon the armor of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, I want to see the power of God over Satan. There are not two ultimate powers in the universe. There is only one, and it is God himself. When Satan wants to have Simon Peter, he must go to God first. When Satan wants Job, he must go to God first. And so we must remember words like these. Satan demanded to have you. Why? Because it reminds us that Satan cannot hurt us any more than God permits him to. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? Beware lest anyone says that, God, uh, that Satan is sovereign over our diseases and calamities and tribulations. He's not. Satan is real and powerful and full of hate, but he is not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. So while we should never minimize this power that Satan does have, it is important at the same time to recognize that it can be exercised only to the extent that God permits it. And this means that our pain and our illnesses and our death and every evil act that is committed is embraced within the ultimate and final decree of God's sovereign plan. And as difficult as this might be for some of you to embrace theologically, the only alternative is a dualism which says that God is good and he is fighting another God of evil and the two are locked in irresolvable conflict. This, of course, is an idea that is completely foreign to the word of God. John Bunyan, who most of you know for having written The Pilgrim's Progress, was a 17th century Puritan, and he endured much affliction in his life. His came as a result of refusing to stop preaching the gospel, and so he was thrown in prison for 11 years because of it. He had five children. One of his children, a little girl, was blind, and he said that being away from them and in prison was worse than having the skin pulled away from his bones but it was most important to him that he not deny God and his calling to preach the gospel. But in the midst of his suffering, he wrote some amazingly profound things. I want to share this with all of us in regards to suffering. Bunyan writes, We also, before the temptation comes, think we can walk upon the sea. But when the winds blow, we feel ourselves begin to sink. And yet doth it yield not good unto us? We could never live without such turnings of the hand of God upon us. We should be overgrown with flesh if we had not our seasonable winters. It is said that in some countries trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. 
You see, a strong tree withstands bad weather and bears fruit in the midst of and after great affliction. And so it is, says Bunyan, with our spiritual lives. He continues, it is not what enemies will, it is not what they are resolved upon, but what God will and what God appoints that shall be done. And as no enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise, so no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for his glory. We shall or shall not suffer even as it pleaseth him. God has appointed who shall suffer. Suffering comes not by chance or by the will of man, but by the will and appointment of God. It's an amazing insight from a man who is in the midst of horrendous suffering. Just like Job, John Bunyan understood the providential hand of God in the midst of suffering. Again, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? Brothers and sisters, Christianity is serious business. There's great joy in our faith, and we ought to delight in that, but it's serious because it deals with serious things. We cannot be disillusioned by the false gospels of the world, which are no gospels at all. Instead, we are called by God to delight in Him who brings all things to pass in amazing ways for His glory. And it may seem dark, it may seem like punishment at the time, but dear saints, in the midst of your suffering as God's children... He doesn't despise you. He's making you holy. He loves you. And if this is true, the obvious question that comes next is why does God design suffering for his children? It's the most natural question, isn't it? Why? But what we must recognize is that no matter what we are considering, the Bible is clear that God works all things after the counsel of his will. God has good and wise purposes in all that happens. He says in Isaiah 46, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So given that we are the clay and God is the potter, it may be that this is none of our business and that we should simply trust the wisdom and goodness of God without an answer. But the scriptures do provide an answer to encourage us and to strengthen our faith. The reason God permits Satan to persist in his sifting work is that in the end, it will be good for the church and it will bring more glory to God. It's clear from the whole New Testament that God intends to bring the bride of Christ to perfection through affliction and trial and temptation. 
we must suffer with Christ if we would be glorified with him in the end. Through suffering and trial, our faith is refined. We are drawn to rely all the more heavily on God, and we are moved to cherish his grace more strongly. Satan has his role to play in fanning the flames of the refining furnace of God. But God is our judge, and God is our refiner, and God is the sovereign king. The Apostle Paul helps us all the more in Romans 5. He writes this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is why God gives us tribulation and suffering so that we may receive it and rejoice in it and be produced in our endurance, being grown in our character and by being built up in hope. Suffering's end is hope. And a glorious hope it is. So let me give us four reasons that God ordains that we should suffer. And then we'll be done. First, suffering deepens our faith and commitment to God and to personal holiness. Suffering is one of God's means to remind us of our weakness and our frailty and our absolute need for him. It is through suffering that we are most apt to be drawn to our knees and to say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Some of you here this morning are Christians because God providentially brought you through suffering where you very clearly saw your sin and the hopelessness of going your own way in life. Some of you are here this morning who are not Christians. And I pray that God would use whatever means is necessary to bring you to the end of yourself that you might delight in the goodness of God. Friend, if you are suffering in sin, I urge you to look to Christ. The suffering of this life is only but a foretaste of the eternal suffering to come for those who reject the holy God of the universe. You are not your own authority, even though you desire to be. No amount of good deeds, no amount of happy thoughts will rescue you from suffering in this life. It will only further condemn you in the life to come. Suffering is intended by God. It is a gracious provision of God to bring you to your knees that you would understand once again that you are weak and you are needy. If you do not know Christ, he is the only precious remedy to all that ails you. He is the gracious savior that will give you life. He is the only hope for true, abundant, hope-filled life. And so the call to you is to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus. The only end to suffering forever. Secondly, we see that suffering shapes our eternal view. Those who suffer and persevere in faith through that suffering find great eternal reward. 
Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In our suffering, we are made to long for our eternal home all the more. And suffering turns our eyes upward and makes things like the Lord's Supper all the more precious because we understand the beauty of communing with God when we are most prone to feel cut off. Suffering raises our eyes to the eternal blessedness of our heavenly dwelling where Christ is going to receive his children. And so our eternal view is shaped in the midst of suffering that we would see and behold and delight in the goodness of God all the more and what he has prepared for us eternally. Thirdly, suffering makes us courageous Christians. Remember in the book of Acts when the apostles were arrested and beaten, they were charged not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. How did that work? (laughs) Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42 tells us that immediately after it happened, the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's amazing courage. They were just beaten for doing that very thing. But they rejoiced and they carried on. You see, our suffering brings us to two places simultaneously. It brings us to the place of considering the important reality of life and death. But it also brings us into sweeter communion with God. And so when we've walked with God, we are emboldened. We are made all the more courageous in our lives because we have tasted that indeed the Lord is good. He has sustained us with his love. He has shown us great mercy and it emboldens us to conform to that which we only previously avoided in fear. We've walked closer to death and we've walked closer to God. And when we do so, we're made to say, my life is in his hands, come what may. And lastly, suffering displays the sovereignty of God and reminds us of our great need for him. Job's understanding of his suffering was that God determined the time and the place and the method by which he would endure affliction. That through Job, God would be glorified. This is what is meant by what we've said all along. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Likewise, when Paul describes the thorn in his flesh and he asks God to remove it from him, the response of the Lord was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul, you will continue to suffer. My grace is sufficient I know that many of you have endured suffering. I know that some of you are enduring suffering in many ways right now. 
And I want to pray that you can celebrate the sovereignty of God over Satan and all the evils of Satan that he has a hand in. It is good and it is right for us to pray for healing and for relief. But it is far greater to rest in the sovereign hand of God, knowing that he does all things well. As each of us approaches suffering in our lives by faith, it will shape us and strengthen us and awaken greater worship within us. Like Job, we will be all the more content in God instead of ourselves. If God is our greatest portion in this life, and we too recognize that the grace of God is sufficient for us, whatever comes will serve to heighten our delight in Him while His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. You see, for the Christian... What makes us able to suffer well is not that God shares our shock. He doesn't. It is that God has ordained all that comes to pass with an end that is already decreed, which contains all the hope and joy and relief we could ever possibly imagine to the infinite degree. And so when you suffer, I pray for you two things. First, that you will be helped by the Holy Spirit to persevere through suffering and in the midst of it to enjoy sweet communion with God onto your eventual healing. And secondly, when the time comes that each and every one of us will die well. The Apostle Paul wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which of these, living or dying, will be our portion, God himself will decide day by day. James writes, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But what is so often lost in our thinking is that the great purpose of life is not to stay alive, but to live unto Christ and to die unto Christ and to make much of Christ in life and death through much suffering. Now, one of the great joys of the Christian life is that which God has given in inviting his people to join together with Christ at the table. Communing with Jesus and communing with one another. The elements of the Lord's Supper are a reminder of the great suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. The sins of God's people punished in Christ as he received the full wrath of God. And the righteousness given to us. The righteousness of Christ. Unmerited. Undeserved. The sins of God's people have been traded for the righteousness of God's son. And it is the son who shows us what suffering is and we share in his sufferings as Christians, and we delight in his sufferings which have provided the ransom. For we were once shackled and bound, but now we are free, and death is no more. And so it's a strange truth of the Christian life. We rejoice in suffering. 
our own because it makes us holy and steadfast and sharpens our view of eternity and makes us courageous and reminds us of our absolute dependence upon God. But we also rejoice in the suffering of Christ all the more because by his sufferings, we are set free. And so the Lord's Supper is not a time for mourning. It is a time for rejoicing. A time to delight in the gift of God, in the presence of God, with the people of God, as we participate in communion with the Son of God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our best friend. And so we come together this morning, I pray, with great joy and satisfaction. The Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the world's end for a perpetual remembrance of him and to show forth the sacrifice of himself in his death. It was instituted also to confirm saints in the belief that all the benefits stemming from Christ's sacrifice belong to them. Furthermore, it is meant to promote spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ and to strengthen the ties that bind to all the duties that we owe unto him. The Lord's Supper is also a bond and a pledge of the fellowship which believers have with Christ and with one another. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church and so the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper are only those who are part of Christ's body. If you have repented of your sins and you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, then you are welcomed, you are invited, and you are encouraged to partake. But if you are not a believer in Jesus, or if you are currently in open rebellion against God in unrepentant sin or under the discipline of another local church, then you should not partake of this meal lest you eat and drink further judgment and condemnation upon yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul urges the church to examine themselves before and while taking communion. This instruction was in the context of the love that each Christian had for one another within the church. We are called to examine our relationships. We are called to confess the sin in our lives that has kept us from loving one another in the way that God requires of us, while also rejoicing in those relationships as a gift from God. We love one another because Christ has first loved us fully and sacrificially. And so we acknowledge before him that we are sinners and we delight in the stricken body and the shed blood of Christ. So let's all take a brief moment to prepare ourselves for the taking of the Lord's Supper and then we will pray and eat and drink together. Lord, help us this morning to hope in you. Through our own sufferings, but all the more through the sufferings of Christ, who bled and died that we might be set free. And today, O God, as you give us our daily bread, I pray that we rejoice in our communion with Jesus and with one another.
strengthen us. Make us courageous. Make us holy. And make us to recognize all the more our absolute and desperate need for you.